Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to the podcast and hello again from me, Tamara Littleton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Wendy Christie. Wendy, how are you doing? Really good, thank you. Just at the time of recording, it's Monday. Um, Had a lovely weekend, had actual brunch in an actual cafe with actual humans. So that was really, really nice. And I'm really excited about this podcast because I'm a massive Formula One fan. So apologies in advance if I get a bit fangirly. (laughs) I totally know what you mean on the on the food side and the fangirling. I've I've got my a restaurant booked in for Friday and I'm going on a, a cheese barge. Oh, wow. I think that's the whole thing. It's like you've got so many restaurants to choose from and and yeah, this one popped up in Instagram, a cheese barge in Paddington in London. So <laughs> food aside, I am so delighted because we are joined today by the incredible Ellie Norman, who's the director of marketing and communications for Formula One. And welcome, Ellie. Thanks, Tamara. Thanks, Wendy. I was um, absolutely drawn in on the food chat. (laughs) A favourite pastime of mine would be eating and cooking. Nice. Ellie, we're going to sort of jump straight in because I'm dying to know more about your story. And I'd really like to sort of for you to share how you got such a cool job, (laughs) what what brought you here, and and it'd be great to sort of go back and, and, you know, have you talk about the journey, because I understand that it starts on a farm. Yes, Um, I did grow up on a farm, and I think, well, I mean, I loved growing up in the kind of countryside, and I think it kind of gives you so much kind of freedom, and I think the things that sort of I certainly learned or you kind of take with you on that journey is curiosity first and foremost. So, you know, when you when you grow up with so much space around you, um, you're just fortunate to be able to be off exploring and kind of always discovering kind of new things. And I think that's something that I've kind of really kept with me of just sort of being always kind of curious as to where I am. Uh, mostly comes back to the food thing as well of you just – Every, every kind of place I'm in outside of kind of lockdown is, is just an opportunity to discover something new. And I think the other thing as well with the curiosity is when, you're, when you kind of grow up, as I did, there is just so much room for exploration. And I was just fascinated basically with like machinery from a, a young age. Um, and I think, you know, most kids will have a fascination with kind of tractors or kind of cars and bits and pieces like that. And I just had lots of kind of tractors or combine harvester and like things to capture my imagination. Um, and so I was always just desperate and keen to learn to drive. And you can start to do it before you kind of turn 17 when uh, when you were up on a farm. So that was where that sort of fascination, I suppose, for kind of speed or anything that moves really kind of stemmed from. I love it. And so how did you kind of fall into – so obviously there was the passion there for, for the driving, but how, how did you sort of fall into the marketing side of things? 
So the passion has always been there. And from from school to where I am now, I think I would best describe it as a happy set of accidents. I've never been a hugely academic person. and I was like that throughout school, but I am really practical, very kind of pragmatic and just actually learn best in an environment where I'm kind of learning on the job. I'm kind of working through things and I'm seeing stuff in action. And so um, I left school after doing A-levels at 18, but definitely kind of grew up in a sort of family where it was, okay, you can't stay at home and like sleeping until goodness knows what what hour of the day as like an 18-year-old, so you've got to go and get a job. And whilst kind of going out to get a job, the first thing I did was went and worked for my mum and my stepdad at their sort of business, which was a dental practice in Sevenoaks. And being on reception, again, you're just meeting so many kind of people and that curiosity from being a kid is actually you just never know who you're going to meet and that sort of serendipity. And actually that led to my first job, which was a marketing assistant for a whitening toothpaste company called Amunina. And this was, again, an environment where it's it's kind of straight up. I'm really eager to learn, got a good kind of work attitude, will throw myself in sort of 120% to anything I do in life. But I'm like starting from pretty much knowing nothing. And that's where I where I sort of started. And I literally did pretty much anything that was asked of me. But you're just in that environment where you're just learning so much. And from there, it was a, a case of another sort of happy accident of, again, being um, at a sort of party and sort of talking to people that my second kind of job opportunity sort of arose. And I was asked to go for an interview and it was um, basically to go agency side. So as an account exec, and that was for a quite small sort of design um, agency based outside of Brighton, but brilliant exposure ways of kind of working, understanding how agencies kind of worked and fantastic sort of clients from sort of Callaway Golf through to sort of insurance. So again, a real kind of breadth, but again, learning a process of how things sort of work. With hindsight, I look back and think, actually, it was mostly um, a brilliant set of uh, circumstances, but at the time it felt anything but because I was made redundant from that job. And when you're sort of 20, um, you actually think your life is, is going to kind of end. Oh, like, oh my goodness, am I ever going to get another job again? Blah, 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 blah. But it's that case of, okay, shit happens and you've got to pick yourself back up and just kind of go again. And the job that I went to next was actually mostly the only job I've um, sort of applied for in a sort of a traditional manner. And back then it was when there were still job job adverts in the in the back of like newspapers. And <laughs> it was a local newspaper, but again it was agency side. I was so enamored and inspired by this job because I thought, right, I've got the agency sort of process. This is going to somewhere bigger, but it was an ability to work on Honda as my client. So this is where the kind of cars came back in. And so for that first time, you get to really marry something you're particularly passionate about, but also be able to apply your kind of learning and a skill set that you've been sort of developing from a work perspective. And um, I had so many great sort of happy years at this sort of agency and still got really good friendship with the sort of founder and sort of CEO of the agency at the time now. And I just loved being 
in this sort of engineering world and um, listening to the R&D sort of department over at Honda and kind of learning about Japanese culture and just everything was engineered to sort of perfection. And I think that sort of over time, I really sort of earned my stripes and, and a level of respect with the sort of work ethic, the sort of diligence, attention to detail, but also an understanding mechanically of how these sort of cars would work or how they'd been engineered and designed that sort of earned me sort of credibility with the Japanese. So much so that my day-to-day client left Honda and the CMO at the time sort of um, approached the agency and asked if they could second me for six months. And that was where sort of another happy accident occurred in that um, after six months, the sort of agency were kind enough to allow me to go permanent client side. And that for me was a brilliant opportunity to really start to understand much more broadly how business works and what the kind of levers are to kind of growth and to be within that sort of commercial setting. So in an agency side, I loved it. I really felt I'd learned everything about sort of creativity and the sort of processes and actually how to get the best out of uh, different types of people. But at an agency, no matter how well your client briefs you, not being in that sort of uh, corporate commercial environment every day, you miss out on so much of how sort of business operates. And so that for me was brilliant. And I spent sort of eight really happy years at Honda, just getting under the skin of the business there. I'm fortunate enough to work with really talented people and sort of be part of some of the kind of greatest sort of creativity or sort of TV advertising um, at the time. Fast forward then to my next sort of happy accident was actually I um, never worked directly for this guy, but there's a guy called Jeff Dodds who uh, was at Honda when I was at Honda, but we were in kind of different functions and departments. Um, And he went across to Virgin Media as CMO. A role was coming up at Virgin Media for sort of a head of advertising and sponsorship. And via a sort of a mutual friend, Peter Cowie, who was at Oyster Catchers at the time. And when I was running some kind of pitch work with Peter at Honda, and he said, oh, this job's come up. Um, you remember, Jeff, da, 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 da. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, I think you should sort of um, apply for the job. So I spoke to Jeff and Jeff was like really straight up. You won't be reporting to me, submit your CV. Um, So I was like, okay, well, for someone who, you know, recognizes and appreciates how competitive getting a job is, always at the back of my mind, I have this kind of little niggle that I left university. And you, you hear so often about sort of CVs not even making a shortlist if you don't have a degree or you haven't come from this university. So um, going back, I think, to that sort of uh, curiosity and creativity, I was like, I actually have to be very creative as to how I'm going to show up and get my sort of CV seen. And I did my sort of research, um, knew a little bit about sort of Jeff and um, from what I kind of gleaned, great cook, also magician. And I took the opportunity to to sort of really think about how do I do this. So I bought a cookbook, Heston Blumenthal's cookbook, and there's a recipe in there and it talks about stopping time. So I actually kind of wrote my cover letter um, like a recipe and I put my CV in there and wrapped up the book and sent it through. And as they say, sort of the rest is history. I was fortunate I sort of got the role at Virgin. And again, that was a real sort of shift from operating at a global level within Honda 
and seeing how the sort of the region's different and really sort of playing on the strengths of getting the best out of people, recognizing the difference in cultures and what was sort of needed to sort of get things done and, and to get that buy-in in collaboration. And then going into kind of Virgin, an entirely different business model, single country focus, so very, very kind of deep PL, a very, I'd say, sort of aggressive and competitive sort of industry. So it's about driving subscriptions and huge kind of competitors with Sky and BT. So it was a fantastic learning for me and again was lucky enough to kind of work on some brilliant sort of campaigns with sort of Usain Bolt and sort of understand the power of sponsorship from a client perspective. And then sort of fast forward to 2017. And I had a phone call from a guy, Sean Bratches, who had like recently landed in London um, as the MD um, for commercial in Formula One. And he'd been given my name um, from Wyden and Kennedy, the CEO there at the time, um, Neil. And basically, Sean had, had met with Wyden and Kennedy and said, do you know anyone? Um, I'm looking for someone to come and set up marketing. Do you know anyone? And Sean was giving my name. So we literally met for a cup of coffee. I think it was like 30 minutes. And here we are. Um, that's how my sort of role at Formula One came to be. I love that story because if you sort of look at it, it's and I know you sort of call them happy accidents, but it's almost like the the perfect career of being able to sort of, you know, be agency side, brand side, learning things from the bottom, uh, all of those opportunities to sort of, uh, you know, craft your trade. It, it almost could be as if someone said, right, this is how you need to get from here to there. It's, it, it's so wonderful. And it, it's, it most probably seems like that, you know, when you look backwards, but at each stage, I've never... I've never been someone who's had sort of huge audacious goals or kind of, or my sights set on like, I'm going to end up here. It's very much about sort of being in the moment and being able to kind of really maximize your sort of learning and, and the joy. And I think that actually the more that I think about it means that I'm able to just feel really sort of content and quite motivated in what I'm doing now. So I'm, I'm always quite sort of focused on that sort of presence versus thinking, okay, what's next? So it doesn't mean to say I'm always looking to improve what I'm doing, but there's that, there's that drive within me that just wants to be the best that I can be in what I'm doing. And I'm really struck by the curiosity. So you mentioned right at the beginning that that that's sort of a big part of your, your driver that, Along the way, there were lots of times where people offered you an opportunity to go and do something different. And and I guess, you know, lots of people are not always that brave to to sort of move from what they're doing and go, oh, yeah, I'll go and join this now because someone has suggested and, and you know, wooed me. But that curiosity of knowing, okay, well, I wonder what that would be like. That sounds like that has, has stayed with you forever. Yeah, and I think, you know, being in sort of marketing – I always think our job is to drive kind of growth. Mm. But if it doesn't work out or if, if where I've gone doesn't feel like home, there will be another home. And it's having that, whether you call it sort of a, a bravery or just using it as an opportunity to almost, if it doesn't work out, you can learn from that and say, well, actually, what wasn't right about that place? Or why didn't I fit? And then go and sort of find a new home. And I think, well, the worst that that's can happen is 
you need to go and get another job. Mm -hmm. And that is clearly stressful at the time, but it's never sort of the end of the world. And, you know, I always think, well, the job that I do isn't about sort of life and death. It's PR, not ER, as they say. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) I'm really interested in exploring how what we were like as kids and what we experienced as kids shapes where we end up as adults. So if you don't mind, I'd like to go a bit further back in your journey and talk about what you were like when you were little. For example, what did you want to be when you grow up? I think when I was really sort of small, I obviously sort of grew up around animals. So I think that first first kind of dream was to be a vet. Then you realise actually that requires quite a lot of academic subjects. So I quite quickly went from being a vet to I then actually wanted to be a Formula One race driver, age 10. (laughs) Uh, Clearly didn't happen. And I think, to be honest, it was most probably that was the last time I really thought about what is it that you sort of want to be. And then it's literally been almost like falling into sort of doing things. But I think at each time, being quite true to myself as to what is it I enjoy doing and what are those what are those aspects of work that sort of really sort of motivate me and so I would never say it was always a case of I want to sort of go into marketing or I want to do sort of this but I think that through each of those sort of experiences each time you can almost um, use it as a little bit of refinement to say actually this is something I really really enjoy or actually, this is really important. And I don't have that experience yet. But I need to kind of have an environment where I can go and get that experience. Brilliant. Yeah. And I think that's, that's just been sort of something that I've almost kind of kept with me. And I think part of that, part of that sort of openness to change most probably also sort of is when you're exposed to change, when you're kind of younger, then I think just becomes something that you're more comfortable with the older you kind of get in life and my my mum and dad got divorced when I was seven um, and that meant that I moved with my mum to go and live with my sort of stepdad um, at the age of sort of seven with uh, two of my younger sisters and then got another two half sisters right and actually that I always say to sort of friends as divorces go, it was like a brilliant divorce because everyone is still sort of very friendly and amicable. But at a young age, that sort of change that you go through just shows, I think, just how resilient you sort of are. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's kind of you're living in a different house or now you're kind of at a different school, you kind of pick yourself up and you just kind of carry on. And so we were sort of lucky in the sense that it was a good divorce. But that exposure to change at an early age has most probably been something that has also contributed or sort of crafted an openness to sort of taking a perceived kind of risk to go and try something else or to change jobs. You just kind of learn to roll with it. And you might at the time be in the middle of something that feels like the end of the world or a massive change at least, but you know that that around the corner it'll be different. Yeah, and then in your head you're like, what's worse that can happen? Yeah. You've talked about some amazing sounding jobs. Have you had a worse job? And you don't need to name names. <laughs> <laughs> a worse job. I've definitely had trying moments in all of my jobs where you're like, what am I doing? And at the time, in fact, I, I do uh, one instance 
um, when I was agency side, I had a client who was being particularly sort of difficult. And I mean, it's awful to say it now, but I actually got up out of the meeting room. I walked out. I just walked out of the agency. I think I went, <laughs> I went to the shops or something. Everyone's like, oh, where's Ellie gone? And I was like, that's it. I'm just not having this anymore. I don't think they ever knew that I'd actually just left. I think they just right. had to do something. And then, you know, it's just like, collect yourself, come back and, and again, find a solution. That would be much easier to do in this kind of virtual world now, isn't it? You could you could just have a tech problem and walk out to the shops, can you? <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think there's ever been any job that I thought, oh, I hated that. That's great. That's good. Have you got any advice that you'd give either to your teenage self or maybe to any teenagers today, particularly those who might not feel that the academic or the degree route is right for them? I think being a teenager now is really, really difficult. And I kind of look at my godchildren or uh, sort of friends of mine that have got teenagers and think, God, life is tough, a whole heap tougher. And I think there are pressures on them that I certainly didn't feel was for pressure to me. And I don't know whether it's been amplified or accelerated because of technology or actually I was just kind of made differently back then I don't know but I think my advice is is twofold like patience it's so easy to talk about being patient and I think with age it's easier to say but I think one of my sort of observations of teenagers is there's this like rush all the time of um, just not being able to enjoy the moment and kind of what you've got in front of you right now. So you're always wishing for, I don't know, a different title or kind of more money or something else. And we're all going to be working for so many years now. And actually, I think one piece of advice would be just to be kind of patient. Mm -hmm. And actually, nothing happens the way you kind of plan it to happen. It's never a straight line. There's always like some wiggly woggly moments. And on reflection, they will be the most meaningful, richest experiences that will actually shape you. So I think that would be mm -hmm. sort of one um, piece of advice. And the other piece of advice alongside kind of patience would be just sort of open enough, open-minded enough to try whatever's kind of thrown at you um, and just to say yes, because you never really know where that relationship, where that kind of meeting is going to kind of lead you to or take you to. And that comes back, I think, just to being sort of curious and open to change. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that you were into cars and speed and anything that moves. So how important do you think it is to have that passion for the, you know, particularly in a marketing role, a passion for the, 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 the brand that you're working with? I think when anyone is at their happiest, it comes through in what they're doing. And certainly for me, having an appreciation of what I'm working in or whatever sector or industry it might be is really, really helpful because we'll always be faced with kind of difficult challenges or kind of problems that you've got to solve. And I think that if you are passionate and you have that appreciation, that drive or in me that 120% is always sort of there. And so I've certainly valued having that sort of passion for cars and equally, even within that sort of Virgin Media context, wanting to know how things work meant that I was 
equally happy and able to kind of geek out on the difference between broadband connections and the difference between a cable and like a telephone wire mm-hmm. that's copper and sort of fiber and to understand what those kind of um, differences within a sort of product were and that for me is has always been sort of really important that whatever I do I want to be knowledgeable about it yeah. and actually find that sort of joy of learning and knowing what the sort of differences are. Because if I can't get excited about that, then as a marketer, it's really bloody tough to try to convey that to a customer set or to acquire new customers or to satisfy fans. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And you've already mentioned, again, when you've been talking about your your journey, some amazing sounding people that you've worked with. Is there anyone who really stands out as really great, genuine humans who've influenced your career? I'd say from each stage of my career, there have been sort of um, key people. And they are those people that today where I sort of am at sort of almost kind of 41, I have kind of kept through with me through that sort of journey. There's definitely sort of um, Ian Norman same surname, but not related, mm-hmm. from the sort of first agency where sort of Honda was a client, Ken Keir and sort of Jeff at Honda, and then obviously at Virgin, and Keris Bright, who I worked with at sort of Virgin as well. And they will sort of remain to this day uh, sort of my sort of support group and sort of bubble who it's just kind of great to be able to sort of pick up the phone and sort of get advice and that's just really nice to have those sort of relationships, actually. And there was uh, Ian at Honda, Armstrong. So they're those people that you you just kind of go to still. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs a squad. Exactly. Ellie, listening to your story, I, I kind of really struck me that there is a real sort of sense of bravery, a personal bravery. And I'd love to know more about how how you've brought that into the marketing for Formula One. Part of the um, appeal and, I suppose, desire of the role at Formula One was the never been done before. Mm-hmm. And Bernie built an incredible kind of sport and, let's be honest, a business from the sport and was hugely successful in doing that. And when it was acquired by uh, Liberty Media in, in 2017, up until that point, it hadn't had marketing And I was so fascinated by how you could have such a big brand, so huge awareness, very sort of successful, profitable business, but without having had that sort of marketing. And so that sort of bravery to come into something that is so well established, but knowing that actually there is so much to do. And so I often describe it as a startup turnaround because it was very much starting marketing from scratch. And I always remember when I had my coffee with Sean, he was like, there's no marketing. And I was like, there must be something. I was like, uh, surely you can't have a brand like that and no marketing. But when I got here, he was true to his word. There was like no headcount. Um, I was like marketing person number one. Wow. And here's like a laptop and a phone. And so there was that excitement to start something from scratch which is why I sort of talk about uh, as that startup and then there's a turnaround because you have the scale of the business and this huge very very passionate fan base and I think the sort of bravery has come by 
recognizing the change that needed to sort of be implemented at the right time. And that was sort of very much about starting with research to genuinely understand how fans felt about the sport. So what were the barriers and what were the sort of drivers and sort of motivators and then actually sort of implementing change. And the, I always say the wonderful thing about sport is you have fans, not customers. And, you know, they very much own it as much as you own it. Mm-hmm. So I always think of myself as actually I'm, I'm a guardian in this role and I should leave it in a better place than when I got here for the next person. And so some of those uh, sort of brave things within that sort of context would be rebranding the sport at the start of 2018. That was certainly sort of a brave thing to enter into uh, when you have such a passionate fan base. But it felt important that we did do that as a signal into the sort of changes that we wanted to implement within sort of Formula One and to really take it to its next kind of level of um, kind of growth and also really placing fans at the heart of the sport. And for many of those fans, I don't think they'd felt as if they'd been seen or kind of recognized mm-hmm. maybe for sort of many, many years. And so that was, I'd say, one of the sort of biggest, bravest things that we did sort of very, very early on. And then it's, it literally has been re-engineering and almost changing some of the sort of mindsets internally and with, our, and with the Formula One team to say, OK, we need to make this sport more accessible. How do we best go about doing that and making sure that we can serve our fans around the world and at those sort of different stages of sort of fan journeys. And I'd say another sort of element, which again is easy to say with hindsight, but Drive to Survive on Netflix has been so successful for sort of Formula One. And it was sort of number one on this third season in like 27 markets when it was um, sort of released in March. And I think that part of the success comes down to the fact that uh, Netflix have editorial control. And actually, from a brand point of view, that is quite a big risk, or it can certainly feel quite scary Mm. as sort of a brand owner to hand over that sort of editorial control. But I think certainly today, when you think about where engagement comes from, it's always when something is at its most authentic and there's kind of real integrity. And by not having editorial control, that certainly kind of comes through. Now, Now, clearly, those uh, storylines will be dramatized because, let's face it, that's what makes great telly. But to hand over that sort of editorial control to someone else is, is quite sort of a brave thing to do from a brand point of view. But in hindsight, again, when you look back, I think that's a really big contributing factor to the success of the series. I love that. And, and if you kind of look at... I mean, you're doing so much at Formula One, but scanning your whole career, what have you been most proud of so far? Through everything, I think there's the the pride in always working with like really good people. And I think no matter where I've kind of worked, I've really been sort of fortunate to have good people around me. And I think the, the more time you spend with people that are better than you, uh, the better it makes you. And that I'm really kind of proud and uh, grateful for. And then I think personally on a sort of work level, I take away sort of different different aspects 
but certainly my time in, in Honda was the sort of ability to work across so many different kind of cultures and ultimately get to a place where we had sort of unified advertising. And that was always by sort of really focusing on, on a human truth, which transcends kind of cultures and languages. That I think it, I'm really, really sort of proud to have got to. And then I have to say, we had so much fun doing all of the sort of work with uh, sort of Usain Bolt, um, just because he's an incredible human being and just doesn't take himself too seriously. So um, that was always sort of fantastic. And then at sort of Formula One, it's being part of part of a team that's there to sort of really drive change and to almost be that sort of catalyst to keep Formula One relevant and sort of growing. And that changes sort of over time. So certainly the rebrand being seen to be sort of changing. So whether it's sort of the removal of sort of grid girls, which had obviously been something that was a, a huge tradition in the sport for a long, long time. But thinking from a from a sort of fan perspective and, and not sort of the fans that were fans of the sport then, but who do we want to be fans in the future and how are we sort of perceived those are some of those sort of decisions that you've been part of that sort of table of people that's that's made that sort of call. And those are some of the things that I kind of think, actually, I'm really pleased that we've been able to kind of implement those sort of changes. And, you know, I always think the more diverse we are in our sort of thinking, the better the decision will be at the end of the day. I was really happy to see the We Race as One yeah. campaign carried over to this season as well. Yeah, honestly, Wendy, that was that was something that we had our like in 2019. Our sort of strategy team have been working on um, sort of our ESG, and we obviously had the sort of strategy around sustainability and sort of diversity and inclusion. And it wasn't until sort of 2020 and the sort of pandemic, and then the sort of catalyst of George Floyd's murder, that it really sort of made us certainly kind of stop. And I think with recognizing what was happening and you sort of pick up, and quite kind of instinctive, but you sort of pick up on these kind of macro trends sort of happening and actually the importance of sort of kindness and community, but also sort of recognizing that without us being able to go racing, there are all these like incredibly talented sort of engineers and um, there were colleagues in sort of Formula One who had a call from the sort of government to pull together sort of a consortium or a collective of all these sort of F1 teams and to put their sort of engineering and skill together. And seeing how they were able to put aside competitive differences on the track work together now essentially with the competitor being sort of uh, COVID and just reverse engineer and sort of uh, engineer and use 3D printing and sort of all of these principles of iterative gain that they use on the track into making like breathing aids and ventilators um, and doing it in like record time was so sort of heartwarming mm. that it certainly really crystallized for me the fact that Formula One is a sport, but actually there is so much that sits behind it in terms of the sort of data and the technology and the innovation that we are at our best when we're solving creative problems. 
And that was um, a, a kind of brilliant case in point. And whilst all of that was happening and we were sort of working um, sort of again as a team to say, how do we come back racing? It was very much kind of recognizing that as a society across the globe, everyone is in very, very different states. So some people will be excited that sports is coming back because potentially it's that glimmer of hope, um, some kind of green shoots. Um, and others may be absolutely terrified, like, hold on, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's so much injustice and inequality in the world. And we got sports back on, like, what's going on here? Like, the focus is mm-hmm. in place. And it was really thinking about that, that it was very much that when we come back, we need to come back as something bigger and something better and to have sort of a purpose at our core. And that was really where sort of uh, We Races One was born from in terms of those two sort of biggest uh, sort of problems facing the world with um, sort of injustice and inequality and then with um, the sort of pandemic. And really sort of happy that, again, there is that sort of collective mindset that really sees the power of what we can do as sports. And I think that we are brilliant at uniting millions and millions of people around the world from all different backgrounds around something they're passionate about. And actually, we can use that platform to unify people and to actually bring people together to raise, number one, kind of awareness, but also sort of implement action to make some of those sort of changes that we all sort of want to see. So um, it's great that we, we're continuing our We Races One journey this year around sort of we've got three pillars so sustainability diversity and inclusion and kind of community so um yeah looking forward to seeing what we can do it sounds like you've got an incredible team around you as well yeah very much so very much so i think um teams are teams are like just what make great things happen I'm going to move on to the part of the podcast where we get a bit more personal, a bit more nosy. So first of all, I'd like to know how you like to spend your time outside work. And do you have any guilty pleasures? Ooh, I love holidays and travel. That will definitely be something where I like to like to recall my husband's favourite saying, which is there are no shops in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> a <Nice>. wise man. <laughs> So yeah, definitely holidays. I absolutely love cooking, eating, and Friday mornings. Um, I always kind of go off for a nice early morning kind of walk before I kind of start start my day, which is um, which is really really lovely. Taking Grand Prix weekends as a given. Yep. What's your idea of a perfect weekend? Oh, so perfect weekend would definitely be not waking up to an alarm at four forty five in the morning. Thanks really sort of lazy so I love being at home friends around social cooking being around the table and just spending time with people that would be sort of pretty perfect oh and always throw in um, a good massage as well sounds amazing now you mentioned your Friday routine but have you got any other kind of routines that help you stay on on top of everything I would describe myself as pretty disciplined. And with that discipline does come an early, I love morning. So it's generally an early alarm. So I get up at quarter to five. Um, I get a a 6am train into London. So I live in West Sussex. And I like to start my day with a Barry's boot camp. Very good. That is my bit of the day, which I'm entirely in control of. 
And then I think get that done and then you never really know what's going to happen in the day kind of work-wise. There might be the odd curveball. So I always do my exercise in the morning. And that, I think, gives me enough credit to not do any exercise at the weekend and just enjoy the food. I, I think you're going to be my new inspiration. You, you've got the routine I dream of. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I can always start getting there <laughs> tomorrow it is because I think because uh, because we Will and I don't have children then you can also be a little bit more selfish with your life as well so that that's where the sort of discipline is as <laughs> well is that. Uh, what's one of the most adventurous things that you've ever done do you know what? it's funny actually you say that because I think it was at the Portuguese Grand Prix and we were having supper um after sort of getting back from the track and we were actually talking about something very similar and I think one of the most adventurous things I did was at the age of 20 in Mexico on a sort of family holiday uh, with my mum and stepdad we were there for Christmas um, and I was working at these first agency um, and there was a brilliant uh, or she still is brilliant planning director Sam and she was up, she said to me, oh, what are you doing for Christmas? And I said, oh, I'm in Mexico with, um, with my mum and stepdad. And she said, oh, I'm in Belize. And, and so I, typical, I looked on the map and I said, oh, it's just around the corner. <laughs> the sort of rigour that I applied to sort of everything. I actually took buses with chickens, planes, boats, like walked across borders and actually did go to Belize and I spent New Year with her. And I look back now and I think, wow, I can't believe that mum and Tim like actually allowed me to go off through Mexico by myself, cross the border, just for kind of New Year's Eve. And, you know, but I didn't have a mobile phone or anything like that. Wow. But uh, yeah, that was that was a brilliant, brilliant trip. Love it. If tomorrow and I could gift you an extra hour every single day, what would you do with it? I always say to myself, I should read more. And I'm really, really poor at reading. So that would be my intention. <laughs> As to whether it was spent reading, that I'm not sure of. But if you do find an extra hour, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think your friends would describe you? And how would you like them to describe you? I think they would all say I was kind, dependable and hardworking and like trustworthy. Ellie, we're coming to the end now. This has been absolutely brilliant. I want to give the, the opportunity to sort of say any last words and thank you so, so much for, for joining us. Tamara, Wendy, I've had a brilliant time with you, so thank you. And um, I absolutely think you've explored every aspect of my life, so I don't think I've got anything else to add. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency. Thank you.